0: You grow
1: up centering a certain cuisine or a certain culture and then you have all of these other ingredients from around you and your friends have their own sort of sensibilities. And that's a level of cultural exchange that I think we can we can separate from appropriation
2: that is like, you know, exploitative. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Husel and I'm here with editor-in-chief Matt Rodbard.
0: On today's show, Anna is talking to writer and San Francisco Chronicle restaurant critic Soleil Ho. Later on, you'll hear me ask Smitten Kitchen's Deb Perlman a reader question. So, Anna, how is it going for Soleil in San Francisco?
2: Soleil has been doing really cool work at the Chronicle. She's getting to know San Francisco. She's new to the city a little bit. She's writing a lot, and she's ruffling some feathers.
0: Yeah, it seems not everyone was pleased with her Chez Panisse review.
2: She did a really difficult thing, which was taking like a really objective and unbiased look at a very influential, very beloved restaurant, and kind of trying to measure people's expectations against what they actually would get when they walk into Chez Panisse. We also got to talk about some of the writing she's done for Taste in the past, about stereotypes uh, around the practice of eating dog meat, also about the difference between assimilation and fusion, and lots more.
0: Here's Anna talking to Soleil Ho.
2: Welcome to the Taste Podcast, Soleil. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. I am a big fan of your work, obviously. I've been reading you for years, and I've loved your podcast, But I also know you because we've worked on some things together for taste. I think you're the only writer who's ever pitched me a story about eating dog. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about that. What made you interested in writing about the subject?
1: The way I approach a lot of writing that I do is if it is about something that I'm afraid to talk about or if I don't have the words to talk about it, I want to write about it. And for me... The dog question was something that I just didn't understand how to grapple with, right? I didn't know who to talk to about it. I didn't have any model for discussing it in a way that actually made sense, mm-hmm. you know, because I noticed a particular, like, psychological tendency in myself, and so I wanted to expose it. So I'm I'm in the business of exposing myself and um, laying bare all of my anxiety through food.
2: One of the most memorable lines in the story was sort of referring to the discussion of eating dog as a game of hot potato. Kind of like perfectly puts into words what you're describing. Like it's really hard. It's a hard question to talk about. Right. It's an inside
1: discussion. You know, there's certain things that you can't really talk about at large because of the way the conversation is going to be read by people from outside of your community. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if you're if you're having a fight with your spouse or your partner, you don't want other people to hear it because they are they don't understand what's going on, right? Um, it's the same thing with the dog question where I've been to Vietnam. I have relatives who eat dog, but I don't know how to talk about that to people who don't understand us and who aren't a part of this context. And at the same time, I did want to do it. I wanted to bring it out because I think it's such an important part of increasing empathy for people that, like, at, on the surface, like, have crossed the uncrossable line. Mm-hmm. And to expose the fact that this line is movable, it's arbitrary, and it's also been used in a violent way against people. And that's why we write about food, right? Because it's such a good entree into all of these bigger topics.
2: For sure. I definitely remember working on that piece with you and kind of wondering what reactions would be like to it. But, to my surprise, there were actually vegans on Twitter posting this piece as an example of a really nuanced exploration about kind of like why we decide to eat certain things but not other things right yeah i mean it it exposes the arbitrariness of of our
1: our moral quandaries and what level of sympathy we're willing to grant certain populations of organism versus others. You know, I think it's a really good analogy for all kinds of things that happen in the world.
2: For sure. Another really nuanced topic that you've written about for taste uh, that I loved reading about was sort of the distinction between like what we often call fusion food in the U.S. and this term that you coined assimilation food. So I was curious, just kind of like why, what made you realize that there was like a need for a new term that really separated itself from the idea of fusion?
1: Um, I found myself in all of these conversations about cultural appropriation and fusion having to delineate this exception, right? Because people will always be like, but what about Danny Boeing and what he does? And I, that is an important question. And that essay was that answer that I could come up with is that it's different because of this. The dynamic is different. And I wanted to explain that succinctly. And I think we did. Um, And I didn't see anyone else drawing that. But like, of course, the proof was in the reception, right? So many people came out of the woodwork to say, oh, my God, I make this food. I just didn't know how to describe it. But it is a thing. It is a a pattern. It is a behavior that people exhibit when they are like of an immigrant family or refugee family.
2: So what what is assimilation food for our listeners who maybe haven't read the piece? How do you describe it? To me, it is
1: growing up with a certain paradigm of flavor and food, a certain framework, and reconciling that with what is happening outside of your home. And so it's making, um, let's say, like like my friend Taisal Rao does um, – toast with peanut butter and green chilies and cilantro and a squeeze of like citrus juice on top. Mm -hmm. Right. Or it's um, what I would do. It's a lot of them are very toast oriented. So (laughs) I would butter toast and put uh, Maggie on it as um, basically to me, it was the same thing. It was rice. It's a starch. So, you know, I put soy sauce on rice. I'll put soy sauce on toast. Same thing. That sort of thing where it's you grow up centering a certain cuisine or a certain culture, and then you have all of these other ingredients from around you and your friends have their own sort of sensibilities. And that's a level of cultural exchange that I think we can we can separate from appropriation that is like, you know, exploitative. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to bring that out because it's such an important part of our experience. And it's also a generative way to talk about exchange and appreciation that doesn't get mired in all of these little silly questions about who gets to make what.
2: Yeah, it's such a distinction that no one has really articulated before. I mean, the word fusion kind of implies that uh like two things are just sort of like passively fusing together on their own force. <laughs> it doesn't really say anything about like who's making the food or kind of like what their perspective is or where they're coming from.
1: Yeah, and I mean fusion is also,
2: it carries a lot of
1: baggage, right? Um, mm-hmm. We often use the word elevate in conjunction with fusion. And elevate often means practically introducing French or Eurocentric technique and cuisine to, you know, uh, cuisines from the hot zones of the world, right? Cuisines mm-hmm. from people of color. And so to me, the you know, when you think about the word elevate, it is raising up like an elevator mm-hmm. from the muck, um, and using French technique as the as the mechanism to bring up that food. And to me, that is like a power dynamic that I don't want to co-sign or support. Or at the very least, I just want to expose it for what it is and not just have it be this apolitical passive thing that we say when we describe food.
2: For sure. Yeah. Sort of on the same uh, subject, you reviewed Andrew Zimmern's restaurant. <laughs> mm-hmm. In uh, it's in Minneapolis, right? It's in the suburbs
1: of Minneapolis. Yeah.
2: What was the food like? What did you think of it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, this is something that has a lot of resonance now too, right? With the Lucky Lees thing in New York, people just keep trying to do this thing. Um, yeah. So
2: often, sort of under the guise of ele- elevating a cuisine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the food was
1: not great, um, and I I gave them a few weeks to get their stuff straight. So I think they had been open for three weeks, three and a half at that point. And we got a pretty good spread of things, noodles and rice and like more savory, like just main course sorts of things and dessert. And it was just kind of sad. Um, my friends and I had been planning on going anyway just to check it out because, you know, we are rubberneckers. And we want to know what's happening. Of you want to know, um, especially because of how hyped up it was by the man himself. And so we just wanted to see. Right? Like, you make a promise. Let's see if you can cash that check. But, yeah. the yeah, it just wasn't – it didn't um, excite me. You know, it didn't enlighten me yeah. <laughs> uh, as to what food was supposed to be like. And so – that was the main takeaway. It was just like, okay, this is all bogus,
2: for sure. And that piece, I think you wrote it for Eater, right? Mm-hmm. That was right before you started as restaurant critic at San Francisco Chronicle, right? Right. Yeah. How, how many months in are you?
1: <laughs> um, well, my first reviews were published on May third, so I am really still extremely. It's, it's like end of April right now. So. Wow. Yeah.
2: You did a thing when you started, which I've never seen a restaurant critic do before, but I thought it was so cool, which is kind of writing about what your methodology is and like what your point of view is coming at restaurant criticism. How was that your idea? Was that your editor's idea?
1: Um we worked on it together. I have the fortune of having a really supportive editor who is very good at bouncing ideas off of, and like will supply a lot of really really smart ideas in turn, and so we worked together on this and developed. Okay, we're going to write this many essays in addition to the reviews, and they can be of this length or that length. But we knew that because the transition was going to be so stark, that people were going to want clarification on like yeah. everything, um, because I am very not like my predecessor who had his own point of view, and I also have a very strong point of view, and so. Just, you know, just to to ease people into the water a
2: bit. What has the reaction been like so far from people? I mean, especially to those first few pieces you wrote and essays. Um, <laughs> the excitement
1: was really fun to follow along with. You know, people were like refreshing the homepage
2: yeah. and waiting
1: for the reviews to drop. And, then and excitement did...
2: on a totally national level. I mean, like everyone in the country was writing about you starting there. It was really exciting. Yeah, it was really funny.
1: Like all of these random... Uh, radio stations and publications wanted me to say stuff to them and like you know talk about the job, which was really exciting um I just don't feel worthy of it still um the attention just feels so intense that um i don't know I'm just like some some person <laughs> you know I am a person, and the funny part is you know you become Projected upon as an idea, unless a person in, in the public's eye, when you when you take on a position like this, um, people look to you to validate their
2: own opinions or their own sense of taste, yeah, or their own value, or um, the thing that they're spending like two hundred dollars on. Right. They want someone say, to say that they spent that money well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and even on the political realm, right?
1: Like people want me to burn it all down and be a revolutionary, which is f- like. Yeah, sure. Um, I have really strong political views, um, but oftentimes I find that the value that is perceived in me is more in my identity and less in, like, what I actually say, Um, right? Because you can have the Ben Carsons of the world, too. They exist Mm -hmm. (laughs) where they are representation of a certain degree, Um, but until you actually engage with the ideas, it's sort of shallow, right? And so there's a, a mix of stuff flying around that is both... Uh, positive and, I think, regressive.
2: Yeah. What is a restaurant critic's responsibility to the city that they're working in? I mean, I think every restaurant critic would answer this totally differently. But do you you have a responsibility to San Francisco and the Bay Area? I think so, yeah.
1: Um, I want to do right by the the area because there's so many good people making exciting things that deserve recognition and should be talked about. These are stories. I am a reporter in the end and it is a service journalism position. And so helping the readers who are scrimping and saving for the one meal out a year that they might be able to take and helping them decide where to spend that money is a major part of my job. And at the same time, I think talking about restaurants that are not Michelin starred restaurants, that are not, you know, multiple hundreds of dollars, of money just to, like, sit down Mm -hmm. is really important, too, because talking about only the high end will limit the kinds of craftspeople, artisans, uh, chefs that you're going to be able to talk about, because there are a lot of other folks. The majority don't have access to that kind of funding to open, like, a big name restaurant, but they're doing what they can with what they have. And that is a really important part of the story.
2: For sure. What was it like to sort of get to know the Bay Area? Were you pretty familiar with the restaurant scene before you moved there? Did you like read a lot of restaurant reviews or any like books or texts to prepare yourself? What was that like first few months of kind of immersion like? It was really intense.
1: Um I have to say that by sheer coincidence I started reading Garlic and Sapphires on the plane to san francisco
2: (laughs) and so love it by ruth reichel
1: and that book is all about her moving from la to new york to start as the critic at the times and you know there was a lot that i related to in that she was so she had such trepidation and a lot of fear and she stepped into a lot of really spicy situations Mm -hmm. as someone who was coming from out of town but she grew up there um her relationship to the city changed because of that and she learned to see a different side of it through her access and to me that's the same thing where i i engaged with san francisco and the bay area you know pretty shallowly in the past mm-hmm. as someone who did events there and would visit from time to time but i never had access to I don't know, that lifestyle that we imagine that people in tech, for example, who are making six figures and buying Teslas and eating out at Michelin starred restaurants every week. Like I didn't know what they were experiencing. But mm-hmm. the benefit of having a critics um, budget is I get that access and I can interpret that for people who might not you know, be able to compare uh, a three Michelin starred restaurant to another one. They will only probably go to one in their entire life. So um, I'm serving all kinds of people here. And to me, the diversity of that is really interesting. And I I do want to do stories that center people who don't have a lot of means as well. So, you know, if you are experiencing houselessness, where do you eat? You know, um, to me, that's a very interesting and important question to ask and to acknowledge like there are a sizable number of people who who think about this every day
2: for sure ruth rachel also i mean when i think about kind of that moment when she started in at the new york times as an outsider coming from another coast i feel like she was able to break a few more rules like she wasn't as beholden to what New York Times restaurant critics had been doing for so many years. So maybe in that sense, like coming from another city, just you can kind of like <laughs> take and leave the parts of of the city that you like. Yeah, I mean, that's the fun part, right? I don't have any entanglements. I
1: don't owe anyone there anything and they don't owe me anything. Mm-hmm. And that is freedom in a way where I, you know, I, I don't have any favors to... Uh, to pay back, so I can have a more sober mind when I talk about the restaurants there, which I think is what was so controversial about the Chez Panisse review. Because, you know, um, the institution has tentacles like all throughout
2: the region and yeah.
1: the, the country, um, and T- so there's. Tell a lot us of...
2: about the review a little bit. What, <laughs> what did you say about Chez Panisse? So I went to. There's there's two
1: ways you can experience it, right? Uh, upstairs in the cafe and downstairs in the restaurant, which is. Uh, Prefix menu, and so I went, you know, multiple number of times, and I wanted to just talk about what I experienced. The first experience was really great, and the second and third were not. And the food was really messy and not as well executed as I expected at the price, Mm -hmm. and especially considering the reputation. And so I wanted to talk about that, and I wanted to talk about on the meta level. Reconciling the reality with, like, everything that we bring to something like that. All the expectations, all of the ideological and, like, philosophical weight that it carries. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea of, like, the revolutionary, right? Because I wanted to talk about the whole Berkeley uh, food revolutionary thing as well. At the same time, I do acknowledge Alice Waters' great contributions to society – And that was really important, and I didn't want to blame her for the execution stuff, because that's not her. It's whoever's working at the restaurant. It's like, you know, it's just, that's why we go multiple times, too, just to suss out the situation and have a more general sense. And I was thinking about the people for whom Chez Panisse is a pilgrimage restaurant, and they go because they want to get a piece of that history, and I want i wanted to think about the restaurant in those terms as well and acknowledge that if if this is this person's one time they get to go and the food isn't up to par like that's sad
2: yeah and that's as valid an experience as like the person who goes once a month right who yeah. lives in san francisco
1: yeah so that was the review <laughs> Yeah. I also talk about like Slavoj Žižek and like other silly things. Oh. In it. <laughs> you work it all in. Yeah, you know, um, that was fun. I just I, I hang on to trivia pretty easily. And so that blew up. I think it was the most popular of all the reviews I've written so far because people were sharing it. And I think it was um, it became a definitive piece on the restaurant because no one had really reckoned with it as a restaurant for a long time. Mm hmm. So I wanted to talk about it. And I got such an interesting spread of reactions just all across the board from former Chez Panisse uh, workers and chefs (laughs) um, and then just people from Berkeley and people who, you know, really disagreed or people who really agreed. And just it was such a a cipher of a restaurant. You know, people like invested so much meaning into it that to write about it brought out a lot of emotion.
2: For sure. I mean, and a restaurant critic is, like, ostensibly supposed to be kind of objective. But once you take away that personal connection from a restaurant, you're going to piss some people off. (laughs) It's kind of inevitable. Right. Yeah. I mean, for other people, it was like I slapped their grandma, you know,
1: and (laughs) I don't want to do that. That's not something I would ever want to do. But there is a lot of sentimentality invested in places like that.
2: For sure. So in addition to being a journalist and a food critic, you also, until I I know you're on a little bit of a hiatus with this, but you're the host of the Racist Sandwich podcast, James Beard-nominated Racist Sandwich podcast. Tell me about what made you decide to start that podcast. It's been around for a few years now. How many episodes did did you put out? I think about 70-ish. Incredible. In three years.
1: Um, and we had very little funding. We we ended up opening a Patreon, which was really helpful. And, you know, I think, gosh, a little less than 100 people kicked in money so that we would have a budget, like a monthly budget for you know, hosting and paying our producers and stuff like that. So that was really helpful. But we didn't have the big money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, We so, we distributed it alone, independently. And... It began because we were frustrated. I was frustrated and I didn't see any of the coverage of things I cared about in food media. And I wanted to be free to talk about that without having to appease an editor or, you know, like having to get the okay from anyone else. And so the podcast felt like the most appropriate venue for it. And at the time, like all the food podcasts that I had heard of were just kind of, you know, whatever.
2: Yeah. You were you were living in Portland at the time, right? <laughs> yes. Yes.
1: So this was three years ago, um, 2016, when I met Zahir John Muhammad at a dinner party and we started talking and then he said we should start a podcast. And at the time I was a chef at a restaurant and I was like, oh, my God, I don't have time for this. But <laughs> I said yes anyway. And we just started from there and we started recording at a community radio station called KBOO, KBOO. And they were very generous with their space and time. And we learned a lot at that beginning.
2: What made you decide to go on a hiatus?
1: We're all, all four of us, uh, experiencing a lot of life transition. Yeah. (laughs) So I was moving and starting a new job. So is really deep in his MFA program at UMICH. He is writing a novel. And Stephanie... And one are both moving or moving to New York, actually, and starting these big life things. Uh, one just got into a CUNY. Stephanie is working for, I think, PRX. So there's a lot happening. <laughs> um, and this was a podcast that we were all essentially doing for free. It was a volunteer operation and we just had to feel free to just say, okay, if this is going to be more of a detriment to our lives than a benefit. So we can stop for now.
2: I heard I've listened to so many great interviews on Racist Sandwich, like Francis Lamb, some mean nose rot, so many winemakers, chefs, interesting food writers too. It's really great. I hope that you guys make more episodes soon. I hope so too. We'll see. I think um
1: gosh. I am so grateful for the experience and it was so Good. At the same time, there have been so many projects that have come up since we started that excite me, that are carrying the torch in such a – in really unique and forward-thinking ways. Like Meatless by Alicia Kennedy. There's A Hungry Society by Corsha Wilson. There's, you know, Keep Calm and Cook On by Juliet Hershon. Like, all of these folks are doing really thoughtful and human-centered food coverage that we were trying to do. And so – even if we stop existing, there's so, so much that's happening that is along the same veins. And, you know, the field is much more crowded than it was when we started.
2: For sure. Yeah. You're, you're kind of the Alice Waters of <laughs> the, uh, the food podcast world. <laughs> right. No. <laughs> but yes, thank you. Soleil, thank you so much for coming on the Taste Podcast. I appreciate it. Here's Matt with a question for Smitten Kitchen's Deb Perlman.
0: Deb Perlman, we have a reader question. What is the best food vacation you've ever taken?
3: Ooh. Um... I would say, can I do a combo? Because we went to Spain two summers in a row, and we kind of did one area, and I don't want to pick. When, um, one summer we went to Barcelona, Costa Brava, and then this past summer we went to Costa del Sol in Madrid. And the food in Spain is just so wonderful. I love the way they eat. I love how relaxed it is. I love that you got, I mean, somebody described to I me, mean, it's like Spaniards are basically just eating all day. You're like, you know, everyone talks about the 10 p.m. dinner, but there's also the 5 p.m. tapas, and then the, the, the 1 p.m. lunch-ish thing, and then there's like the stuff you order to the beach when and you're there. And lunch is like
0: definitely religion there. Like you take it off like 90 minutes of your day. Oh,
3: absolutely. And then I just there's you're just there's just a lot of different ways to eat, but I just felt like the food was simple and wonderful. I loved um at the beaches they have those plantas, I think they're called, and they they just they smell so good. They have the wood. It's just kind of smoking all day. And then when you order something they just throw it on, so when you're walking to the beach, you see these um, wood grills out back, and you smell them from like a block or two away, and it's just even before the seafood hits it, it's really good.
0: And did you go to any of like restaurants? Like you know, they're known for like some of their the, no. the Michelin. You just went. We, super did, cash. we didn't do any.
3: No, because we we were with kids, and that really that really that yeah. really affects the amount of Michelin starred restaurants <laughs> you welcome in. I don't really know how to put it. More politely. Um but uh, yeah, but we did it, but we had some really good like oh. regular meals. Like like a restaurant in a town. Like, you know, sometimes those town restaurants are like super kid friendly and your kids can like run around and be crazy and you can have like several glasses of wine and it was. Oh, really I, yeah,
0: I think I'm all for the more casual spots for sure. And it's so cool, you brought your kids to Spain.
3: I mean, I wasn't allowed to leave them at home with <laughs> just like a bowl of kibble, but yes, it was I, I hope they'll remember some of it. Um and um, in the end, like when you look, it's sort of it's definitely a lot harder to go on vacation with kids. But it, it is sort of fun to like not have to leave them behind to do cool things. Thank
0: you so much.
2: The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Gabrielle Lewis. Studio recordings by Pat Stango. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Interviews are recorded live at Books Are Magic in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn, and at Penguin Random House Studios in Manhattan. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com. Thanks for listening.